Welcome back to episode two of For the Greater Defense with Associate Professor of the Practice, retired Colonel Matt Gill. We just left off last week talking about the early global war on terror and the entry into Iraq. Uh, about 2004, 2005 is where we left off discussing. So, Colonel Gill, can you tell us a little bit about the context of what was happening in that time in your life, and but also in the, the life of the global war on terror? Yeah, absolutely, Jacob. Thanks for having me back. So, you know, when we were, we had just finished up on the final episode, uh, or the last episode, really talking about we've invaded Afghanistan, we've invaded Iraq, and now I'm back in the United States. I'm a company commander in the vaunted 82nd Airborne Division. I'm at the prime of my life. I'm a two-time combat veteran. I am just high on myself. I am, uh, my wife could probably detect it uh, when I walked in the door. Um, but during my third combat rotation forward, back to, I ended up back in Ramadi, Iraq at this point in time, I ran into a couple of individuals on the battlefield in the, in the special operations community and did some work for them uh, in the same area of operations. And uh, we became really close friends, and I really enjoyed the work. And when I redeployed from, from that operation, uh, is when I sat down uh, with my wife at the dinner table, which became our uh, – she knew something serious was coming when we would sit down at the dinner table and I would say, hey, I have something to talk about. And that was the point in which I told her, hey, you know, I kind of made a mistake going into special forces, but at this point in time I want to join the special operations community. And uh, and she said, okay, let, let's try this. And so about a week after uh, company command, we had taken a vacation down to Cancun, Mexico, to just kind of our first family vacation in, in a number of years. And, uh, and I reported to a nondescript parking lot with a nondescript people for a nondescript assignment to a nondescript location. And uh, I went through a form of uh, selection and training for a little while and entered the special operations community. Yeah, so this time, uh, like we discussed last week, um, the permission was given by your wife. So this time <laughs> there was she was on board. If reluctantly. Yes, very reluctantly. So can you talk a little bit about what the special operations community meant to you? Why did you want to join it in the first place? And and what made that uh, so important to your career? Well, I I think my entire life I've been action-oriented. And I, you know, by this time I'm a a three-time combat veteran. And I, you know, not a warmonger. That's not what it's all about. It's the sense of internal competitiveness, uh, not to be a better person, but can I be a better member of a really good team? Do I have what it takes to be a part of a really good professional organization and and that team mentality? And if it's one thing that the paratrooper environment really teaches you is that you never do combat alone. You are always with people. And there are always people supporting you. Uh, but I wanted to take it to that next step. I wanted to see, do I have what it takes to, to operate at the highest levels? And fortunately for me, for whatever reason, I was picked. It was selected. Uh, and then we were off to the races uh, in that community. So can you talk a little bit about now, like, like I said earlier, we're about in 2004, 2005. Can you tell us a little bit about how the global war on terror had actually changed the defense intelligence community that you were a part of? prior to 9-11 and then into the global war on terror, uh, what had changed? Yeah, great question. So I, well, the first thing that changed was orderliness. And so not to say that, you know, war in the modern world is this Napoleonic kind of conflict where everybody's online and we're moving formations like chess pieces or even checkers pieces. But I think we had all trained that, you know, this is how war unfolds. This is how the football play is going to go. And 
going and picking a war uh, with al-Qaeda in Iraq, they don't have rules. There's no order. So there's no formula to predict how the enemy is going to unfold. We had, by that point in time, we'd figured the Soviets out. We, we generally had figured the North Koreans out, um, only mainly because we had figured the Soviets out. But how do you do that against the Mujahideen? How do you do that against the Fadayeen? And so for about a three-week to four-week period of time when, during the invasion of Iraq, that was really the most orderly portion of the entire global war on terrorism, where they were fighting according to rules that we were familiar with so we could fight them with the rules we were familiar with. But once you get into low-intensity conflict, the rules completely change. There's no rules anymore. There's the law of armed conflict. There's the rules of engagement. But the relationship between the antagonist and the protagonist is not orderly. So that's the first thing that changed. The next thing that changed was technology, uh, drones, cyber, cell phones, signals intelligence collection. Everything changed, not just because of the tools and the technology, but how we were using it. Before that, we would use, you know, the precursor to the modern drone and satellite imagery to look for massive formations of Soviet tanks coming through Poland. And you can see that really easily. Okay, well, now how do you use a drone to chase one individual in a white pickup truck in a city filled with white pickup trucks? And that just completely fundamentally changes how you do intelligence. Instead of orderly and mass and size, it becomes disorderly, non-rule following, and very, very finite. And so we had to change everything from on the fly. And I'm going to go ahead and credit uh, retired Lieutenant General uh, Michael Flynn, who was my boss at that point in time, just for the, you know, one, the adventure, the creativity, and then at the same time, this just sheer willpower to force the defense intelligence apparatus to change its old orderly ways and really redefine new rules of intelligence for the Defense Department. So can you talk a little bit about that disorderly aspect of combat? You talked about the prior order associated with, you know, major nations fighting um, against each other. Um, Did it force the U.S. defense intelligence community to become disorderly? Or was that just the enemy being disorderly? Well, I think if we had gone into disorder, we would have essentially been strategic mirroring them. You know, their disorder creates our disorder, where what General Flynn did was he didn't, you know, break the China in the China shop. What he did was rearrange the plates to where we really needed to be. And and because he knew how defense intelligence worked, he was able to teach us how it worked. And then we were able to get creative. And that's where you can insert retired General Stanley McChrystal and retired Admiral McRaven, the bosses of the units we were in, that essentially said, okay, hey, Gil, figure it out. That's a lot of, one, pressure, but a lot of freedom as a mid-grade officer to go figure out a problem that's disorderly and then apply order to it. And that was the biggest challenge. Uh, Because once we could apply an orderly approach to defense intelligence, that's when we can go against their critical vulnerabilities. This person meant more to the network than this person. Why did we not go after Zarqawi early? We were chasing him every day, every night. Um, But maybe we we needed to dismantle the network, and Zarqawi just wasn't the most important person tonight. It's an interesting concept. And and can you talk a little bit about uh, where were you in your career when those flag officers 
told you to figure it out? You said you were mid-grade. Uh, how long had you been in the military at that point? Yeah, so I'd been in the military for all of a whopping 10 years at this point. I had gone through enough training to where I was no longer dangerous. I had enough combat time under my belt to have a semblance of credibility in the community. Uh, but that is where you know your loyalty to your profession and your trade uh, kind of kick in. And when you're given uh, freedom, when you're given autonomy to solve a problem, well, that's when the hard work starts. And that's where you have to study. You have to know what your systems are. You have to be able to communicate. And you have to be extremely creative and abide by the law. So you talk about this creativity. I think a lot of uh, a lot of times in classes we discuss the importance of creativity and analysis and, and just in the intelligence community in general. Can you talk a little bit more about what that creativity meant for you in those combat roles. Yeah, so if you look at defense intelligence, how is defense intelligence really different from any of the other forms of intelligence? Well, that is our nation's intelligence community, or at least that portion of it, that looks at other people's means of war. And so when you look at the years of all the individuals who were very familiar with the Soviet military, now we're studying tanks and planes and artillery pieces and, and soldiers and guns and, and how those things apply to it. Well, when you're fighting the Fedayeen or you're fighting al-Qaeda, whether it's in Yemen, Somalia, you know, North Africa, they don't have squads. They don't have divisions. They don't have fighter wings. And, you know, but they have people and they have ideology and they have wives and they have children and they have lives and beliefs similar to us. Uh, well, when you go try and break apart that, community or that network of terrorism, it's not a Soviet tank division. And you have to look at anthropological issues and how do anthropologists study, you know, uh, groups of people? How do sociologists study groups of people? What are the na what's the nature of human dynamics associated with Islam, uh, for example? Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that matters. Now, how do you go apply military or defense intelligence to go collect on that one? And that's where it gets really, really difficult. And that's where you have to be creative, that the rules of intelligence no longer applied during the global war on terrorism, except for that three-week period where Saddam still actually had a military. So you talked about these complex challenges uh, based in anthropological history and uh, and all these different factors. That, that's a lot to put on the, the shoulders of a 10-year uh, member of the Army. What do you think prior to that had allowed you to be successful in that position? Well, you know, that's a great question, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that one. I, you know, the longevity, you know, piece, you know, I get reminded, hey, if you want to be special, you actually have to be really good at what you do. And if you want to join the ranks of the elite, then every morning you wake up, you have to attempt to be elite, and the rent is due every day. Okay, so how did how did that make me any different from, let's say, a 10-year major who was in the 1st Infantry Division or 3rd Infantry Division, and it didn't. Uh, my problem was what's more finite. Where I was looking for a specific group of terrorists, there were other majors in the Army that were dealing with cities, that they actually had to do the intelligence of Fallujah, a major urban environment in Iraq, or out in al-Assad, Iraq, where you know it's a major urban environment stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And their problem was just so much bigger but very, very similar. The one thing that I think really helped was when General McChrystal and General Flynn started to impart on us a really 
positive theme of we can't just be special by ourselves on this battlefield. We have got to start talking to the Marines and the Army. And, and so we did. We stopped being very insular, and he created a network, a fusion event between us and the conventional forces during the war. And, and to be honest, I am actually still lifelong friends with some of the Marines and the Army soldiers that uh, I ended up working with just by being in their area. We see kind of a picture of the whole of government approach in that way, mm-hmm. uh, reaching out to all of the assets that uh, were available why do you think that was so important and, and do you think that it had that never been done before well i think it had been done i mean during i mean world war ii was an all-of-government approach to things world war one to to a certain extent uh korea somewhat but vietnam absolutely a whole of government approach you know military leaders are astute historians and we get to learn from our our past mistakes And I think what we ended up doing in Iraq, especially from a special operations sense, is we knew the value of the State Department. We knew the extreme value of the FBI. Uh, In fact, one of our other professors, Mike Howe, he and I have actually been in the same sandy areas. We just didn't know each other, but we were a part of the same network of people. We understand the value of USAID and all the power that the U.S. government can bring together outside of the kinetic side. And... If you want to talk about a war with Russia or you want to talk about a war with China in the 1990s, we knew it was going to be kinetic. We knew it was going to be a big shooting war. Uh, but if it's one thing that Afghanistan and Iraq taught us about, it was this cannot just be a military adventure in the desert, that it has got to be everybody uh, involved in it. So in the course of this last uh, two episodes, you've mentioned quite a few places that you were involved with. Uh, I think already we've mentioned Ramadi, Fallujah. You've mentioned fighting the Fedayeen and the, the Mujahideen. Uh, is there some, something specific that drew you to, to go out to all of these places? And why do you think you ended up in so many different diverse areas? Yeah, so I, I, my grandfather was just a tremendous man, like everybody's grandfathers are. Uh, and, uh, and he told me as a, right before I was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan, he said, be brave, but smart. And he said, for the rest of your career, go to the sound of the guns. And, and I didn't really know what that meant. I should have known what that meant, but for the rest of my career, I said, well, if I'm going to go ahead and invest in a career in the army and the army's going to invest in a career in me, especially in the special operations community, I don't want to sit behind a desk. I don't want to be a manager. I want to lead people. Uh, in combat, and I want to be where uh, this is going to sound melodramatic, but I want to be where the action is. And so, uh, whether it was joining special operations and going on oper- uh, going forward to you know places in Africa and um, the Middle East and Afghanistan and, and, and Europe, uh, it gave me an opportunity as an intelligence professional not to just do the intelligence problems I was given as part of those operations, but to see the future. And to be able to identify if I needed to be at the sound of the guns, uh, maybe that maybe in combat isn't always it. Maybe I maybe now is the time that I need to take a break from the operational role and I need to go back into the academic world. And that's when I ended up at the Navy War College uh, in Newport, Rhode Island as a senior major getting ready to pin lieutenant colonel. And from that, uh, I was able to see the future and the future at that point in time, which is about 2010, was the sound of the guns was not in Iraq. It wasn't in Afghanistan for me. It was actually in Washington, D.C. So you've talked about this in class before, how the, the sound of 
you know, the sound of the gun is not always where you think it would be. Why was it Washington, D.C.? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think at that point in time, uh, we have a brand new president, you know, and for a lot of military commanders, you know, one day they're on a video teleconference with uh, the Bush administration, people who had been at war for eight years. And then the next day, there's President Obama, an entirely new decision-making staff uh, that had a different belief than the, the Bush administration, not worse, not better, just a different administration. And this was an opportunity for the Defense Department, especially defense intelligence, to really be exactly what it needed to be, you know, servants of the American citizenry. Uh, and I felt at that point in time that uh, actually it was more General Flynn that felt that this at, at that point in time in my career. I really wanted to go back into the fighting formation. But he said, no, Matt, we're, we're, we need you in the Pentagon and you're going to do something for us here. And with that, we'll conclude podcast number two. Thank you so much for being with us, Colonel Absolutely. Bill. I look forward to the next evolution. Me too.